Welcome to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm your host, Pete Mazzetti. My guest this evening is Joe DeLong, who's the president and executive director of CCM, which is the Connecticut Conference of Municipalities. Joe, welcome. How are you? I'm doing great, Pete. I wish we were there in person, though. This, uh... I know, I know. It's been a while. How you been, my friend? I've been fine, and it, it has been a while. You know, right near your studio, most people probably don't know this, but right near your studio, there is a great little pizza place. And, right. and I always make it, I always come in early and make sure that I go to that pizza place. And so I'm, I'm kind of sitting here thinking about that and, you know, and just, just one more sacrifice here due to COVID-19, I guess. I know. I know. Tr trust me, Joe, once everything gets back to normal, we'll have to have you come down in person and we'll have to have a slice together after the show. Ah, uh, can't wait. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Joe, how long have you been with CCM? Oh, about three lifetimes now. Um, I think I I started on April 1st of 2015. Um, so I've been here a little over five years, um, and it's been a it's been an interesting experience for sure. I've enjoyed every minute of it, but you know, a lifetime worth of experiences five just a little over five years um, when you deal with some of the, the challenges and the uh, interesting things that go on in the state of Connecticut. Right. Now, for those of those of us that don't know exactly what is CCM and what do you guys do? Sure. So there are there are 49 municipal leagues in the, in the, in the nation. Yeah. Uh, Hawaii is the only state that doesn't have a municipal league. Connecticut's municipal league is one of the most robust. And basically, we're one of the most robust because as people know who live here, local government is the entire show. Mm -hmm. You go to many other states and they have a municipal league, which all the towns and cities are in, and they have an association of counties, and they have, you know, a county commissioners association, a sheriff's association, all these different groups, they all play on the same playing field. In Connecticut, CCM is, you know, basically it, um, you know, because we don't have county governments, we don't have all these other organizations. So we are the association all of the towns and cities are members of, actually currently, as we sit here today, 168 of the 169 towns and cities are members of CCM. Wow. And we do everything from uh, training, newly elected officials, uh, joint purchasing. We do, we're, we're probably the leader in the state, frankly, in doing governmental data research and analytics. Uh, we have an insurance, a risk insurance pool called CURMA, which stands for the Connecticut Interlocal Risk Management Agency that provides property, casualty, and workers' compensation liability insurance to almost all of our cities and towns. From a forward-facing standpoint, although it's only one component of our organization, um, what we're probably most known for in the public eye or in the forward-facing eye is we do advocacy for towns and cities both at the state house in Connecticut as well as at the federal level. Okay. Now, as far as what's going on at the Capitol for this upcoming session and how is CCM involved with that? Well, you know, it's interesting. A lot of, if you will, lobbying groups or advocacy groups are very singularly focused on, on you know, one issue or one area. Maybe it's education, maybe it's, economic development, maybe it's, you know, healthcare. Our organization, because we represent towns and cities, and towns and cities are diverse, 
you know, and they include businesses and labor and you know, all of these different things that make our communities what they are. We are involved in one way or another in a variety, probably almost every, well, not every, but almost every issue that passes that state house. We're involved in it in some capacity because we have to make sure that the way that it's being done, that the real implications on our communities are going to be things that are positive, that help us grow, that help us work better together, that create opportunity, um, that control expenses and allow us to provide the programs that need to be provided. So you know, we're involved a little bit in, a, in, in one way or another in almost every committee that meets, almost every bill or piece of legislation that moves through the state house there is some uh, impact on our local communities. We're engaged in making sure that that's it, it, as much as we possibly can that has a positive impact, and not a, a negative impact. Now, as far as the COVID goes, what, how is that, in, how is that impacted? What CCM does on a daily basis? You know, it's it's really interesting. We have worked incredibly close with the Lamont administration through COVID. And in the beginning, that work predominantly was around the municipal budget-making process. Mm -hmm. Because we have, you know, our towns and cities, you're aware, Pete, have all kinds of charters, all kinds of different provisions that guide how they enact their budgets, or in many cases, and how they appropriate money. And a lot of these cities and towns, by charter or by other rule, they have to do that through town meetings, through local budget referenda, through a variety of things that made sense in a pre-COVID and probably would want to make sense in a post-COVID environment, but in an environment where it was not safe to bring people together, it was not safe to put the public together in one room or in a city hall or out on the town green. We had to work with our towns and cities and work with the governor's office, get a lot of executive orders implemented that, that changed those rules. It allowed government can, to continue, local government to continue during uh, this COVID environment. But the important thing was, we wanted to make sure that we still allowed it to continue with transparency and with community engagement. Because that's one of the things that makes local government special is there is so much community engagement, so much more community engagement than certainly what we see at the federal level or even at the state level. So in the last several months, or at the beginning of COVID, we were spending hours with a lot of municipal attorneys, people in the Office of Policy and Management at the governor's office, as OPM, and, and representatives that they had working directly with towns and cities to make sure that we were getting executive orders implemented that allowed the work of local government to go on in an effective, transparent, and safe way. Um, and that seems, easy and reasonable on its surface. Mm -hmm. But when every town has a different charter, when there's a different set of rules that govern the way that these things are done from one community to the next, that was a complex process. Uh, we got through that pretty well. Uh, a lot of work, a lot of really smart people at the table, um, avoided a lot of you know what could have been unintended consequences by having a, 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 a really broad group of people involved. But now what we're really shifting into with the governor's office uh, in communications with the communities has to do with the vaccine rollout. And how do we effectively um, 
implement a, a vaccine rollout that gets our most at-risk people vaccinated, we don't lose any vaccines, and we're communicating as best we possibly can um, with the public so they understand where they are in line, what the process is going to be, how it's going to work. So it's really been you know, an, an interesting and unique transition from the very beginning, again, dealing with budget making, uh, to some degree dealing with schools, school openings and school closures, um, rolling forward now to dealing with vaccination rollouts. Now you said you guys actually work with vaccination rollout. How does that work? Well, a lot of it has more to do with communication. Um, we as, as an organization, and me in particular, I am not an expert um, in any of these things. We certainly rely on experts. But what happens is because we have so many small towns, where things really get lost is not in a lack of expertise. It's in the communication channels. So what we do a lot as an organization is if our communities have questions, they're able to filter those questions through us and get we can get them directly um, to the people either in the Department of Public Health or you know and whether it's local health. Most of them have communications with their local health departments, but certainly you know with the, with the state department or you know, with the governor's office, we can get those questions in you know to the into the right hands or those concerns in the right hands. And coming back communication coming back downhill. The governor's office uses our organization a lot as a conduit to communicate the information they need to get out to our towns and cities. Um, we don't try to step into that space and become the experts. We don't try to give advice. There's, there's a lot of areas where our organization does that. We talk about best practices, where we train municipal officials, where we, where we give advice. But this is an area that we need to rely on the experts. So we play more of the role of the communication aggregator to make sure that everybody is getting the information that they need and that everybody is, is somewhat singing off of the same sheet of music to avoid any confusion or, or God forbid, beyond avoiding any confusion, avoiding the, the potential for uh, spoiled doses of vaccinations. So that's something that we're really engaged in right now is just making sure that those lines of communication all across the process are as seamless as they can be. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a very, that's a very important point you bring up. And as far as the, like, like you said before, work with working with municipalities, I understand the town that I live in, we actually switched over to a town government side of things. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of communities that are going from, you know, one to the other for a variety of reasons. Right. Uh, some of them want a strong mayor, city council form of government. Some go to a strong town manager uh, form of government. Um, some are, are very, uh, the voters decide on almost every issue through some type of referenda or thing of that nature. And others, you know, the, the elected officials, the people that elect are elected to make those decisions in their entirety um, you know it's so it's, it's different um, it's challenging sometimes oh, yeah. it's so different but that's also what makes Connecticut unique and that's something that's really built into the fabric of our communities there people um, understand how their communities form of governance works and and they're proud of it and there's a tradition behind it and in many cases they're very uh, they're protective of it 
Absolutely, and I, I know, I know, I know the town I live in. We actually before had a board of selectmen form of government. Now we switched over to a town manager and a town council form of government. And especially last year, when the, we set, when they set, when it was time to go to budget referendum, that was very interesting because the town, the town council, set everything rather yeah. than going to referendum. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and there's there's pluses and minuses to all of it. What I what I try to advise communities when they're studying um, those different forms of government or looking to make a change is don't make a change for one specific purpose or one reason, because many a times what you're going to find out is things aren't always as they seem on their surface. Right. Um, we had a, a community one time that wanted to switch from a board of selectmen or council form of government to a town manager form of government solely because of their local pensions. And there was a challenge with their local pensions and there was a group in the community that blamed, probably rightfully so, blamed the elected officials uh, for giving away the spur, if you will, and creating this huge deficit, this huge budget hole. Right. So their belief was, if we have a professional town manager, those things will never happen again because town managers are professional. They're full-time. Right. They're engaged in, in ways that you know, an elected official who's part-time may not be. What that community found out very quickly was it really mattered who they elected anyway, because that town manager still works for that council. Right. So in many cases, if the council did something that the community didn't like, it was at least transparent and the elected official had to own it, had to defend the decision, had to talk to their constituents about it. Where it got to a point where even if the town manager didn't agree, his bosses were telling them to do him to do something. They could have the exact same set of problems, but now those elected officials' hands were a little cleaner. So you just you have to understand that there's pluses and minuses to all of these processes. But there is nothing, whether it's a town manager, whether it's an elected official, there is nothing that's more important to the functioning of local government than a well-informed and a well-engaged electorate. That's the stopgap for bad decision-making, is if the community is paying attention. If they care about their community, watch what's going on at town hall, and they're engaged in that decision-making process. That's the most important thing. It's not structure. It's all about the people taking accountability for what happens in their communities. Absolutely, absolutely. And I know we talked about this a little bit earlier, but let's talk about the general the legislative session in general and what what we can expect to see well you know they're they're right now still getting their feet under them yep. figuring out how to uh run an effective efficient and transparent legislative session virtually mm -hmm. um it's different i think they're, they're doing a great job from what i've seen of trying to work through those kinks and that's going to be a, a really important part of this session because the worst thing that can happen with this virtual environment is if people felt like things were happening uh, kind of behind the scenes or not in a transparent way or we were 
you know, they were working their way around that level of accountability. Now, we all know some of that happens anyway. There's plenty of things that happen in the market yeah. high-end statehouse. But the process itself, at least, matters, is important. And right now, that's what's happening more than anything else, is everybody figuring out the process. Now, I did tell you, Pete, I'm, I'm a little, as we get past the process, okay. I'm a little concerned about the policy making this session. Okay. Um, and the reason why I'm concerned is not for what you would normally think of as being bad factors. I'm concerned for what could be good factors that prevent or shield our elected officials from making hard choices. Okay. And here's what I mean by that. Um, through COVID, we saw recently where our sales and income tax receipts actually came in higher than expected. That's great news. That means there's a lot less of a budget deficit. It's going to be a much, much easier for the General Assembly and the governor to put together a, a balanced budget for the short term. The other thing that's, you know, I'm not trying to get into people's party affiliation. I'm just talking about from a government, state government balancing its budget standpoint. Right. A shifting of power that happened in Washington, D.C. will likely lead to more federal aid coming down to not only towns and cities, but also to the state. The state is probably going to see a relief package come from the federal government that had the election went the other way, that relief package may not have come or may not have been as robust as it likely will be. Now, from a Connecticut perspective, that's also a good thing. We like to see, especially in a state like Connecticut, where our tax dollars, a lot of them go to Washington, D.C., right. never come back. They go to other states, go to Kentucky, and they go to West Virginia, and they go to Alabama, and they go to all these other places. We are a state that funds other states. We're not a state that usually gets a lot back. Okay. So the fact that we're probably going to get some revenues from the federal government in this next relief package is a positive thing, and and frankly, we should um, get that type of funding. It's about time that Connecticut gets some funding from the federal government. Yep. But all of that's positive. My fear is that it makes the legislative session a little too easy on our policymakers and allows them to ignore our core structural challenges for one more year. Uh, which we can't afford to keep doing that. Um, Connecticut has an over, just think about these numbers for a minute. Okay. Connecticut has an over $60 billion unfunded pension and OPEB liability as we sit here today. Oh, wow. And that is based off of, and I don't want to get into too deep of wonkish terms here, but that's based off of a 5.5% discount rate. Right. Experts will tell you in that field that the discount rate probably should be closer to 4%. If you follow the experts' discount rate of 4%, that's more like a $70 billion unfunded liability. Right. Now, to put that into perspective, if there's all this, there's, there's really, I'm going to call it three camps. Okay, in dealing with this issue. Okay. I disagree with all three camps. So I guess I'm the contrarian here. You have the progressive camp, 
um, the, the people on the hard left, doesn't mean every Democrat, but certainly what you think of as the progressive side of the Democratic Party. Right. Who believe that the way to fix that problem is through progressive taxation, which means that we should increase the income tax on people who are rich. Uh, people who single single filers who make over a half a million dollars a year and families who make over a million dollars a year with the premise that millionaires and billionaires can pay more. Yeah. Now, here's the problem with that. They're not wrong, I don't think. I mean, it's a policy debate we can all have. They're not wrong. But if Connecticut increased its income tax on those people that they're trying to target, and made it equal to the highest rate income tax of any other state in the nation, yeah. that would only dip into one third of this problem. Now you have the other end of the spectrum, which are the people on the far right, the very conservative, um, harder right wing of the Republican party. Mm -hmm. And what they will tell you from the conservative perspective is Benefits in these pensions are way too rich. That um, was done irresponsibly. We don't need any more taxes or any more revenues. We need to cut. We need to cut these benefits. We need to cut these pension benefits. We need to drill this cost down. Well, they're not wrong either, except for the fact that you can't cut $60 billion or $70 billion out of the pensions. Um, first off, you have a property rights issue on the base pensions, but you can't take away people's base pensions. Second off, you can't really, I suppose you could eliminate pensions altogether for future hires, mm -hmm. um, but you're not going to be able to hire anybody into the state government. People deserve a pension, and on the back end of their career as a taxpayer, if they don't have any pension to keep them when they become seniors, taxpayers are going to end up supporting them anyway. So that doesn't solve the problem. So you have the far left is really a little disingenuous in their way of solving the problem. The far right who's really disingenuous in their way of solving the problem. And then you have the third camp, which is the worst camp of all. They're the ones who just want to ignore the problem completely. Right. And say, hey, everything's great. Let's not worry about this. Let's put a budget together for this year and magically down the road, either all this stuff will take care of itself, um, or at least I won't be in office anymore and I won't have to deal with it. Right. Um, that is probably my greatest concern as we go into this session, and we've had it in prior sessions and may have in future sessions, is that we're not taking that issue seriously enough. Um, we're not taking it seriously at all. And here's what's really disappointing about that okay. um that issue cannot be looked at in a vacuum first off it makes up the majority of our state budget when you look at the state of connecticut and the things that we would like to do to get people to move here we'd like to do to create more stability we'd like to lower property taxes and create more property tax stability we'd like to make sure that all of our children are getting equal education and educational opportunities Right. Well, the state significantly underfunds its commitment, its constitutional commitment to public education by underfunding the ECS formula. 
the state underfunds its its commitments to the payment in lieu of taxes program, which predominantly impacts our urban communities that have a lot of tax exempt property. Uh, the state underfunds uh, our, our social services industry uh, significantly in many cases, making it very difficult for them to deliver the services that they need to, to deliver underserved or underprivileged residents. We can't even with a straight face anymore call UConn a publicly funded institution, which almost all states have publicly funded universities. UConn's not even a publicly funded university anymore. The state funds so little to UConn, it's really now just a public supported university. It's certainly not a public funded. All of these things, and then, then our commitment, frankly, to creating incentives and other things that can drive economic development. All of these things, the state cannot meet and has not met its obligation for years because of the anchor it's holding the state down of these unfunded pension and open liabilities. If that problem were taken seriously, all of these other things that we would like to fund would be funded. There would be money in the budget to do it. People's taxes wouldn't have to go up anymore. The state would meet the obligations of which it set forth. Our children in underprivileged, underserved areas would receive the resources that they need in order to get um, proper education and a, and a real start in life that otherwise they may not have. But every bit of that is hindered or held back because of this one looming issue that, as I've said, we have three camps. Two that, two that are approaching it from a disingenuous way to appeal to a base, and that middle camp who's not approaching it from the middle, they're approaching it by not approaching it at all and trying to ignore it. And, and so that's, for me, going forward, that's the real issue that all of these other issues hinge upon. And, and my fear, I think, I think it's a reasonable fear because the tax revenues came in a little higher, because the federal government will probably send a little bit of bailout money that they'll get out of town being on a safe zone for the current year and not doing anything to position us to, to grow out of this pandemic or to provide future and opportunity for our children and our children's children. Jill, would you mind sticking around for, for another segment? Yeah, happy to, Pete, thank you. All right, we'll be right back. Valley Shore Community Television is constantly adapting to the demands of our viewers. Busy schedules are making it hard for viewers to watch shows when they air. Television has changed dramatically. We don't have to be appointment viewers or listeners anymore. No. We can do this in real time. VSC TV has made it easy to watch all our locally produced content online and when you want it. Visit VSCTV.com and click on the Watch Online tab to watch live, or visit our local show playlist to easily navigate your favorite shows anywhere, anytime, and on any device. VSCTV is your local Connecticut Midshore Valley digital connection. Welcome back to this week's edition of the Pete Mazzetti Show. I'm sitting with Joe DeLong from CCM. Joe, welcome back. How are you? 
I'm doing good, Pete. I'm, I'm always just uh, so pleased to come on with you because so many of these types of programs are all about sound bites, and you and I get to have real conversations, and I always enjoy having those conversations. So thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks for thanks for coming down. I know I know this is probably the new normal for a while, but like I said before, once everything gets back to somewhat of a normalcy, we'd love to have you back in studio with us. Yeah, I, you can you can count on it. I always enjoy it. And you know, the people are watching or listening. You know, they they hear or see you, they hear or see me. But my experience being there, you've got a great crew working in that building too. And um, absolutely, you know, I've I've got a lot of respect for them. I know those are kind of the un unseen, unheard of folks behind the scenes, but your your uh, public television program, uh, you've, you've got a good, good team there who always makes me feel right at home when I come in the door. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for that. Thank you for those kind words. And I'm sure I'll pass on everything to them as well. Speaking of, speaking of kind words and wonderful things and wonderful human beings, right before the COVID broke, I was at WNHH radio doing my show and I actually met Matt Ford. Yeah, Matt, Matt's a good guy. You know, a couple years ago, Pete, um, I went to the National League of Cities um, conference for executive directors, my, my colleagues and peers from across the country. And one of my colleagues uh, in North Carolina was on kind of the, the front end of this and said his league had started a podcast on municipal government and local issues. Right. And there were a lot of people in the room who were interested. This is before people were real engaged in, in podcasts. There's just a lot of them out there now. Right. But I came back from that meeting and, you know, I'm kind of an old dog. So first thing I'd figure out, what the, what the heck exactly is a podcast? You know? <laughs> yeah, right. You know, what, what does this really even mean? So I came back and uh, Matt Ford was a member of our team. Matt knew exactly what it meant. Um, he had worked in marketing and communications, and he'd actually done a podcast uh, before on the radio. And Matt said, yeah, if you'll, uh, if you'll let me do it, I'll get it off the ground. Now, there's a great thing about that, Pete. How many bosses do you have that an employee says, will you give me the work? I would love to have this extra duty or extra assignment. Yeah, right. And that was Matt. Matt's like, yeah, man, give it to me. I'll, I'll. And another guy named Chris Gilson who worked for us, they were they were excited about it, and they said, uh, if, you, if you let us do it, we'll take it and run with it. <laughs> so, well, far be it for me to get in your way, you yeah, know. And, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've done this. Uh, Matt does that podcast uh, post every other week. Mm -hmm. um, Chris works with the guests and lines things up. We talked about your great crew behind the scenes. Chris does amazing work behind the scenes. And I tell you, I think he and Matt have really put on a very, very quality podcast. And one of the things that the only, I say one of the things, the only thing, the only thing that I requested when they got it going, is I didn't want it to be all politics all the, all the time. Right. I wanted to have, you know, important political guests on there that could discuss public policy that we're very much engaged in. Right. Also wanted to have guests on there that were just doing unique things across the state in their communities. And highlight them and let them talk about it. I mean, a few years ago, we had a couple of years ago, we had a little league team that uh, went to the little league world series from one of our communities. Um, and we work with the Connecticut Coalition to End Homelessness and some of the incredible work that, that they're doing. And just a whole variety of people 
who are doing amazing things right here under our noses. And those guys, uh, you know, they'll have they'll have the high end political guest, you know, the senator, the governor, the whoever. Mm-hmm. And then the next week they'll have that person who is, you know, running some type of garden or you know some type of, of program for underserved youth or something like that. And just not looking for recognition, not looking to be highlighted. But we feel like if we highlight them and talk about that, that not only do they deserve the recognition, it helps inspire our other communities to what is possible. So it's it's a great experience. And Matt Ford was right on the uh, forefront of making that happen for us. Absolutely. And the only person Matt Ford hasn't interviewed as far as the community goes is Pete Mazzetti. Well, we can fix that, buddy. <laughs> I'll, I'll take care of that real quick. So. <laughs> You say I, I, I actually met Matt, but I was actually doing my show at WNHH Radio with Paul Bass and Harry Droz. I was coming in as Matt was leaving. Yeah, you know it's funny you mentioned that. Maybe we could have a split show with you and, and then have Paul. I've wanted to have Paul on there for you. I think they might have actually had Paul on um, one time for a short segment to talk about changes in the media and all that. But you know, Paul, if there's anything going on, particularly in the New Haven county area yeah. but even beyond paul bass knows about it um, oh absolutely he, he is he's done an incredible job for years so yeah we'd love to have both of you guys on there absolutely as a matter as a matter of fact right before the pandemic broke i was in studio at wnhh radio doing my show and my guest was actually paul bass for the half hour oh wow yeah yeah what a great guest to have so he's a, he's a really nice guy too I won't let Paul interview me. I'm afraid he'll ask too many tough questions. I'll be able to <laughs> I know. Yeah, I, I, I know, I know. Now, Joe, as far as what the, let's talk about what the COVID, what the, what's going on and what the COVID is going to look like, especially during legislative session coming up and basically how they're going to conduct day-to-day business and day-to-day operations. Yeah, I, I think, you know, and I don't, it's it's so funny. We're actually working internally as a staff to put together a workshop okay. for our membership, for all of our mayors and councils and, you know, first selectmen, boards of selectmen, mm-hmm. all those things to explain to them everything about the legislative session and how it's going to work uh, so they can properly follow it and be engaged in it. Here's what's interesting about that. The workshop's not put together yet because we don't know. (laughs) We're still trying to work it out as well. But I think one of the things that's going to be uh, important, and I think maybe a blessing, I'll give a a comparison. When we had to shift to a more uh, virtual environment for community engagement at the local level, whether it was budget referenda or whatever the case may be, we saw participation increase. You know, if people had to come out to town hall, there was a certain segment that was willing to do it and always did it. But when we started doing the virtual, we got those same people that would come to town hall. It also engaged a whole new group of people within the community that were willing to be engaged if you brought the meeting to their living room as opposed to them having to make the trip to do it. Right. I think that could happen very much with this general assembly session. And I think it'd be a great thing if it does happen. Um, that when they do the hearing process, 
the public hearing process where they get input and testimony from various members of the public on different pieces of legislation. There are a lot of people that those bills impact their lives. Right. You just can't drop what they're doing at any given time, drive up to the state house, go to the legislative office building and spend an entire day waiting for their two and a half minutes to testify. Right. But people may actually be able to do that and come on during their turn if they're doing it from home, if they're doing it from their living room. So, so my hope is, my belief is, that this process may actually open the door to not only more public viewing, mm -hmm. but more public participation and more public engagement as to what's going on at the state house, and that's a very, very good thing. Um, it's a good thing for the public because they can learn and learn from it, learn from what their government is doing. But it's a good thing for the elected officials because they can actually hear from their constituents as to what their thoughts and concerns are and how things will impact their communities. So I think from that standpoint, if it's done the right way, and I believe it will be done the right way because I think, number one, I think our elected officials at the state house mm -hmm. want to do it the right way. And number two, I think if they didn't want to do it the right way, there would be enough people pointing at them saying you can't conduct the business of government in the dark. Right. So I think if they do it the right way, which I believe that they will, I think it's going to be a really good opportunity to bring public engagement, much like we do locally in our communities, to bring that level of public engagement uh, to Hartford during this legislative session. Right. And, and again, if that happens, only good things can come from that. Absolutely. Now let's talk about how you can recover economically from the COVID? Well, Connecticut has to figure out what it wants to be, you know, going forward. You know, the state one time many years ago is a manufacturing state. Right. Um, you know, we have not done a good job dealing with or adjusting to the digitally driven, data driven economy that we're living in now. Um, Connecticut is one of the very, very few states that coming out of the last recession did not grow. Um, everybody else kind of came out of the recession, Boston, you know, up in Massachusetts, all mm -hmm. this is all took off. Connecticut stayed very, very stagnant. Our growth was at a snail's pace. It wasn't real growth, more like inflationary growth, where before the pandemic, we were just starting to get back to where we were economically and the recession levels going back into like 2006. Um, and the reason why was during the recession, the state didn't do anything to position itself to come out of the recession and grow and take off. We came out of the recession believing if we come out of the recession, the recession's over, we'll go back to right where we were before and happy days will be here again. Right. Our economy doesn't work that way. And so one of the things that really needs to happen is, is our leaders, our governor, our elected leaders and others need to figure out where, how do we want to position ourselves for success and for growth? What is that plan? We don't have one. As far as I can tell, we've never had one. Now, there's a lot of great economists out there. Um, one person I'm sure you could interview who could give you far more details about this than I could mm -hmm. would be Fred Karstensen, the economist from UConn. Okay. 
And, and what Fred will tell you in great detail is the, what Connecticut needs to do to position itself to be economically competitive nationally. Right. And let's face it, even globally. See, one of, the, one of the challenges that we have here, as parochial as we are and as proud as we are of our local traditions, we tend to think that, you know, Weathersfield is competing with Hartford. And if we can get past that, if we can get past that mentality, then our next step is we think, well, Hartford is competing with Boston. None of those are accurate. We are competing with markets around the globe. We're not competing town to town. We're not just competing within the New England region. We're not even just competing nationally. We now live in a global economy and we have to make sure that we are positioning ourselves successfully to compete within that global economy. Um, and that's just something that the state has never done before. One of the reasons why it's never, it's never had to. You had considerable wealth, particularly the wealth in Lower Fairfield County, um, outside of New York City, that helped the state. Um, you know, that was a big issue. It was like, you know, we'll always be okay because we have that. You also had, um, at one time, you had a suburban-driven economy that Connecticut, because it has so many small suburbs, was a place that companies wanted to relocate to. And it was like when you had GE down in Fairfield. Mm -hmm. These were companies that wanted to attract and recruit talent. And the way that you attracted and recruited talent was by making sure that people had a nice house, a fenced-in yard with a dog. Right. That was the American dream. But what happened was that all started to shift. You had a next generation of young recruitable talent that did not want to drive a car. They did not want that great big house or that great big yard, that you know that fence with the dog. What they wanted was a little condominium apartment that sat upstairs above a brewery, that they could walk downstairs and walk their dog in that condominium apartment and walk down to the grocery store and get groceries if they wanted to, or ride their bike around the streets, or go basically any amenity or anything that they wanted was within walking distance. Our state wasn't built that way. Right. Our state had the closest we probably had to anything that looked like that was a little bit of the area around Yale. It wasn't that robust. You know, the, the sad joke about Hartford was at one time that when five o'clock came to all the businesses, everybody went home, that they used to say that they rolled up the sidewalks. Because it was dead. Now, Mayor Brown has done amazing work, and Hartford is making a great comeback. But my point is, we have to understand that suburban-driven economy um, that, that was a leg up for Connecticut really became a hindrance when the economy became an urban-driven economy. We were not prepared or positioned to compete in that urban-driven market. That's why. Now, you talk about tax increases and all that stuff. Yeah, that's all part of it. But when GE left, where did they go? They went to a very high tax place in Boston. Yeah. They didn't say we're just out of here because of the taxes. Part of it was they said, now we only have these taxes. But we're positioned in an area that's not the market competitive area anymore because this is not the charities about flew back on me. Um, this is not the market competitive area anymore because this is not where this new generation of being a talent magnet 
That's not what they're looking for. They're looking for something different. What's going to be important for Connecticut is to understand how much that demographic has shifted again because of the pandemic. Because now we're seeing all these people flock out of New York City and start to come into Connecticut to buy up homes. So does that mean that, that it's also going to be a greater attraction? Are we gonna start attracting companies back into the suburbs again? Because talent now wants to go back to the suburbs and not be in the cities? Or is that a very short term thing? It's just a blip on the radar because of the pandemic. I don't know the answer to that, but that's a question that experts in economic development should be asking. Now, what does the future of Connecticut look like? Well, I think, you know, look, I, I think it's bright. And I'm going to tell you why it's bright. It's, it's bright because there's a lot of people here with incredibly higher educations. There's a lot of smart, talented people that live here. And there is a lot of wealth that can drive opportunity and, and all of that is important. And I think that that puts the state, gives the state a competitive edge. Look, we're we are not, you know, we, we are much more talent um, than some states in the Midwest and other places like that that wish that they had the resources that Connecticut has. We are a, I'm not talking about natural resources necessarily, but a human resource rich state we are, and that's always gonna be positive. But we started off this show, and I know it's long, so people may join in and watch this part and not see the beginning. We started off talking about, earlier talking about anchor, right. which are those massive unfunded pension and OPEB liabilities to hold everything else back. And if we don't address those, our future is not going to be anywhere near as bright as it should be because that's something that's always, every time we start to climb up, that's a hand that's always going to grab us by the back of the coat and pull us back down. So, so what I would tell you is if we get the courage to address those issues and to put our state on a solid fiscal path, and eliminate all this fiscal instability that we have is really surrounding that one singular issue that we have lacked the courage, frankly, to take on, um, then the opportunities here will be absolutely endless because we have all of the other pieces of the puzzle that we need. And this is a great place to live. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, you know, you can, well, you know, we love here. Listen, I'm not native to Connecticut. I people tell me I still have my accent. Of course, I don't hear it. I'm sure everybody else does. So I'm not a native. I can't hide that. But I've, I've never lived in a place where I saw people who were as hard on themselves or as down on their state as what they can be here. Um, and reality is, man, we've, we've got it good. I mean, I, I lived, I grew up in West Virginia. West Virginia's got major problems, major issues, challenges, and does not have the resources or the ability to address those things like we have here in Connecticut. Right. But West Virginians have a deep, immense pride in their state. 
uh, and living there and its beauty and its opportunity and it being a place that they want to be. We've got a lot to be proud of here in Connecticut. We have great schools, really, really attractive communities with a tremendous amount of character. You know, all of those things, listen, talk about Florida. We pay high property taxes. What do our high property taxes go to? They go to schools and they go to services and they go to things where we at least see some return, maybe not enough, but we at least see a return on that investment. In Florida, they don't have those property taxes. You know what they pay for? They pay a fortune in insurance and hurricane insurance and other things like that to insure their property. Absolute fortunes that are built into their mortgages. And you know what return they get on it? Nothing. It's wow. insurance. They don't get the return that we get on our higher taxes that we pay here. So we have to stop being so down on ourselves and understand this is a great place to work. It's a great place to live. It's a great place to run to raise children. But with that being said, we have challenges. Right. If we don't stop ignoring those challenges, then I'm not saying Connecticut's going to become a horrible place to live. It's going to get left behind in terms of where it could be and should be if we would address those things appropriately. Absolutely. And Joe, before, before a little bit earlier in the segment, you actually mentioned Mayor Luke Bronin. From what I understand is Mayor Bronin is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, the president of CCM? He is now. He's our new president-elect. He is, um, believe it, in our 54-year, 53-year history of CCM. Okay. He is the first mayor of Hartford to ever be president of the organization. I'm, I'm shocked by that. I, I did not realize that. But, but let me tell you this, Pete. I don't know how much yeah. time we have, but I think it's interesting. When I came here, the, the organization had no urban engagement. Um, it was predominantly just our smaller communities, right. which they're wonderful. And I love them and I want them to continue to be engaged. But, but, you know, I was here for a year and a half of Mayor Bronin's, the um, person that came before Mayor Bronin, never met him, despite wow. many attempts to try. Um, was not in, Bridgeport was not engaged. New Haven, you know, we were housed there, was not engaged. Waterbury was not all that engaged. Right. And it all started with Mayor of Waterbury, um, Neil O'Leary. Sure. I went and had a meeting with Neil O'Leary. He was one of the urban mayors I reached out to that said, yeah, I'll be with you, come on down. The other ones I couldn't even get an appointment with. Hmm. I went and met with Mayor O'Leary and I said, we need an urban voice too. We need to represent everybody. Will you come on our board and not just on our board, but be active. We had people on our board and never came to board meeting. Will you come on our board and be active? Mayor O'Leary said, absolutely. And he joined the board within a year. He was the first vice president. And then he served two years as our board president. Oh, wow. And through his engagement and working with other urban mayors, they saw that we were an organization that could help the cities, that could, that could actually do things um, to make their cities more robust and how much we had to offer. They had kind of drifted away and either forgotten or hadn't seen the value. They paid their dues, mm -hmm. but they just weren't deeply engaged. Now we have great engagement from our rural communities. We have great engagement from our suburbs. And we have great engagement from our urban communities. And we are better off and stronger because of it. I'm going to say one of the other people that I've interviewed that virtually for the Pete Mazzetti show, show is Susan Bransfield. 
You can't say Susan Bransfield without getting a smile on my face. Of course not. No, of course not. She's a wonderful person. You know, I am, I am not, I am not a believer in human cloning. Yep. But if I were, we'd clone clone Susan Bransfield a hundred times over. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. She, She was the president of our organization. That's right. She is, she is tough, yet kind. She is thoughtful, um, very, very bright, mm-hmm. very reasonable. You know, I am, I'm an emotionally driven person. You have a lot of times people who can either raise my emotions in an unproductive way or somebody who can kind of lull them to sleep and doesn't want to do anything and says, hey, calm down, let it go. Exactly. Susan was neither one of those things. Susan figured out how... To, to stay engaged in a, in a driven way, but in a productive, kind, polite, and respectful way. Right. Um, to this day, she is somebody that I rely on for um, sage advice, sometimes yeah. just to be my therapist, <laughs> whatever the case may be. You, like I said, you'll get a smile on my face anytime you mention first select of Portland, Susan Branchfield. Absolutely. There is no, there There may be wonderful elected officials who I greatly respect. Right. There is no one better than her. Oh, she's, hey, she is, she's absolutely wonderful. Actually, I had another mutual friend of ours and we got a little bit more time left. So we got to do one more shout out to Carl Fortuna in Old Saybrook. Oh yeah, Carl just joined our board. He did. Yeah, yeah. First, first time, first time board member. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a story that's going to be interesting about Carl being on the board. Is okay. I had a, had a very good positive story. A couple years ago, now there's a much bigger push today. But a couple years ago, within the internal workings of government, yeah. um, and some of the departments within the governor's office, back under Governor Malloy, the affordable housing issue. You know, the, the forcing more affordable housing from the state level issue right. uh, was, was coming up. And a lot of our small towns had a lot of objections to that. Yep. The way that it was done, forcing us to do something that's not thoughtful, that may not be right for our community, different things. Right. Now, that issue is a much bigger issue today. Something's going to happen this session because it's growing. You now have desegregate CT. Now, a lot of other people who are kind of on the forefront of this or, or weren't on the forefront of this, they're engaged now. But going back a couple of years ago, Carl was the small town rock star on this issue. Absolutely. He was already doing these things. He was already uh, creating what he deemed as workforce housing and all of those types yep. of things. He was, he was cutting edge on what is an incredibly controversial issue to this day. Mm-hmm. He had already figured it out, mm-hmm. you know. For, and so I remember where we, we were sitting up at the, at the legislative office building in front of one of those commissions. And that commission was kind of attacking CCM as an organization, attacking all of our small towns for not doing it. I said, right. wait a minute. Why don't you listen to Carl Fortuna and let's hear what he's done in Old Saber. Exactly. And hey, Joe, we're, out of, we're almost out of time. So I want to thank you for coming down and hopefully we'll see you again soon. Hey, you got it, Pete. Thanks so much. Right, you have a, a Thanks, great buddy. week, and I uh, look forward to seeing you again. You got it. On behalf of Joe DeLong, I'm Pete Mazzetti. Thanks. Good night, and we'll see you next time.